From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. I'm Clark Corbin. Attention Idaho reporters, there was an election Tuesday night. And further attention Idaho reporters, there's been a lot of news in Middleton the past seven days since last we spoke on the podcast. So that's where we're going in in that order. Let's uh, start with the election. Let's start with Tuesday's uh, big results. We were up late into Wednesday morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the thing we that we're kind of in shifts there by right. about three in the morning. It was like taking turns watching the numbers as they slowly rolled in. Yeah, let's pick up where we left off last week, saying that we thought the superintendent's race would be the closest statewide race, and Nailed boy, that. it sure was. Nailed that. <laughs> um, it, it was close, and, and and close, I think, in the ways that we expected it to be. Uh, you know, when I looked at the the numbers from 2014 and tried to kind of prognosticate what would happen in 2018, we saw a lot of things we would have kind of expected. Uh, we saw Cindy Wilson running strong in areas where she needed to run strong, like Ada County. She she won big. Uh, Blaine County, uh, Latah County came in big for her, Bannock County. I mean, traditional Democratic strongholds. But what we watched as this race unfolded and as Tuesday night became Wednesday morning, was just kind of the the strength of Republicans across the state and, you know, the ability uh, for Republican candidates to pick up a lot of votes in a lot of uh, reaches of the state, namely Canyon County and Kootenai County were two counties where the numbers were coming in late. We were watching. We saw that there were a lot of precincts still hanging out there in Canyon and Kootenai County. And sure enough, when those numbers came in, finally... (laughs) late into, uh, well, not even well beyond Tuesday night into Wednesday morning. That's uh, what turned the tide. And, and in the end, I mean, Sherry Ibarra wins by about 17,000 votes. She, she Much better than she did four years ago. Yeah, she tripled her winning margin from from four years ago, and I think that's worth noting. And I think a lot of it had to do with a big turnout all across the state. Huge turnout in Ada County, working in Cindy Wilson's favor, but huge turnout in places like Canyon County and Kootenai County that uh, that turned the race for Ibarra. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it was a, it was a close race um, as we expected, but uh, that was the closest race. Um, yeah. Everything else wasn't quite as exciting, at least on the statewide front. There were no close races really Tuesday night at, at the statewide level. Uh, nothing nearly as close as this. I mean, even you know Medicaid expansion won in a landslide, two, which I yeah I guess I wasn't as surprised by that. But Prop Two won handily, and, and won handily. Yeah, all across the state. If Prop 2 was running for governor, it would have had more votes than anybody else. I mean, that uh, there were more supporters of Prop 2 than there were of Brad Little uh, when he was elected governor. And uh, I think, you know, and, and I think in kind of the, you know, Friday morning quarterbacking of, of the Tuesday night elections, I, I think there's, there's something interesting there, and I don't know what it means, that Medicaid expansion, which was really well orchestrated campaign, a really strong grassroots campaign, lined up endorsements and support from all over the political spectrum. I mean, you had, you know, progressive groups and you had Governor Butch Otter and you had, you know, we saw education groups like the Idaho Education Association and the School Boards Association all lining up in support of Medicaid expansion. I mean, that's how you build a coalition and that's how you get a 60% majority. And I think uh, what's curious is that in a year where Medicaid expansion won so handily. Republicans up and down the ticket also won almost as handily, in most cases the, the exception being the superintendent's race. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, 
I, I, yeah, I guess that didn't really surprise me. We didn't expect the governor's race uh, to be close at all, and it wasn't. It, it, yeah, I didn't expect it to be terribly close. I think it was, you know, when I was thinking about it last week and we uh, we had a panel of the Chamber of Commerce talking about it, I I, I think we reporters, uh, myself, Betsy Russell, and, and Melissa Daplin, I think we all kind of coalesced around the idea that Little was going to win. Maybe it would be a little bit closer than previous governor's races. Maybe it would be more like a 55 to 45. Kind of like what we saw with, with Butch Otter and Jerry Brady back in 2006, a, a relatively close showing. But at the same time, you could see some warning signs in the numbers back in the spring when Paula Jordan won and won the primary impressively. I mean, 58% support in the primary, but a lot of counties she lost, even in the primary. Like uh, Bannock and Bonneville and Nez Perce and Kootenai County. Kootenai County, even for somebody who's from North Idaho. Um, and that would have been in the Democratic primary, so you don't have the influx of Republican voters right, there pushing exactly. that. But if you're struggling in the primary uh, to win that county, that doesn't uh, bode well for the general election. And sure enough, I mean, you look at some of the numbers in you know, Kootenai County, I think Brad Little had about 67%, pretty much where, where, where Sherry Ibarra was. So you could see signs that in, that Jordan, coming out of that primary, had a lot of work to do to build up a, a statewide critical mass to get the kind of numbers that you would need to be competitive in a governor's race. Uh, it looked like even from May that she had her work cut out for her. And, and, and you know, I think it's one of the storylines that the national media really missed when they came out. and One of several. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that really... I don't think the national media picked up on was looking at the 58% that Jordan got in the primary. While that's an impressive number, and it is, she won that primary in three counties. You, you, you break it down county by county, she won Ada County, huge. She won Canyon County, which is not, not a county you know, Democrats are going to win yeah. in November. And she won Laytaw County, which is you know, a college town, uh, a fairly progressive county. The rest of that primary statewide was pretty much a dead heat between between Jordan and AJ Belukov. So that I gave, gave me a sense that, you know, does she really have the the critical mass statewide to to put together a viable campaign? And and really the numbers did not materialize for her. And you know, her her showing at thirty eight point two percent slightly below AJ Belukov's showing in the general election four years ago. So, you know you know I, and I wonder where this kind of leaves Democrats, both, both the, the governor's race and looping back to the state superintendent's race. Um, really, I think, kind of a sobering night for Democrats statewide because you know, Jordan's numbers do not suggest that, you know, for all the energy that, you know, she generated with her volunteers and with her supporters, and she still did get that rock star treatment even on election night at Democratic headquarters, that didn't translate into numbers. And maybe... That was a race that was going to be tough for the Democrats to win anyway. But state superintendent was a race kind of there for the taking. It was a race that Democrats could have won. You could even argue it was a race that Democrats should, should have won. won. I because, think yeah. you know, you had, you had a good candidate who was out doing everything that a candidate ought to be doing, uh, raising some money, getting some, I thought, fairly effective third-party advertising on her side. Uh, she kind of played to more of a nonpartisan uh, base. I mean, she pointed out that she serves on the board of correction at the uh, 
to two, two Republican appointments. Right. Two, governor, two gubernatorial appointments, that one and the, the K-12 task force, uh, got some endorsements and kind of crossed ideological lines. The Frank Vandersloot endorsement I thought was going to be a big deal. Uh, Jim Jones endorsed her earlier in the campaign. She did all of the things that a, a challenger in a in a red state going against a Republican incumbent ought to do. It's not that Cherry Ibarra ran a fabulous campaign. She barely she campaigned. She didn't raise a whole lot of money. I did not see any advertising for her. I did get a robocall in support of Sherry Ibarra at my house a few days before the election. That You've gotten good. more calls from Sherry Ibarra than I have. It was a robocall. It wasn't a call from Sherry Ibarra. <laughs> know, but you know, but but my, my point is just not a lot of a an apparatus of a campaign there. And, you know, and yet Abara won that race. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, Democrats have to wonder, and I kind of wrote this, and I wasn't being flipped when I wrote it on Wednesday in the postmortem, when will Democrats win a statewide race? You know, it's been 16 years. I think they had a shot again at state superintendent, but we could have said that four years ago and did say it four years ago. Yeah, I, I really... Where do Democrats go from here in terms of trying to win statewide races? And, you know, do you tap in in any way to what you saw in terms of the support for Medicaid expansion? Is there the makings of a coalition that maybe crosses party lines and, you know, breaks some of the Republican stranglehold around the state? I don't know. But then again, you had Medicaid expansion on the ballot. It obviously drove people to the polls, and Democrats couldn't capitalize on it either. I mean, you know... You can't underestimate the, the power of the Republican brand, and I think that that is what we saw in the superintendent's race. Give a bar some credit. I mean, she has some brand of her own now. She's four for four in primaries and generals. You know, there's got to be something there, but it, it is that power of the Republican brand, especially as you look at kind of the, the broad scope of the state. Ibarra won 36 counties to, to Wilson's eight. Uh, it's hard to win a statewide race when you're only winning eight counties. E- even if you win Ada County big and Ada County has huge turnout, still not enough votes. Yeah, I think Cherry Barra did it her way, which is how she did it uh, four years ago. She said from the outset four years ago that she's not a traditional politician. She's not going to behave like one. She's not going to have the big campaign events like a politician would have. And she, and she kind of focused on... Uh, doing her job as state superintendent, really only had one campaign event statewide that she organized herself. That was a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about that. We don't. <laughs> I don't think we need to talk about that anymore. She did hop on the Republican statewide bus tour in the last, say, 10 days or so before the election. I think that's an extremely powerful, successful, well-thought-out uh, force, that Republican bus tour with all the statewide constitutional officer candidates and the congressional candidates, uh, some 50-whatever-plus stops um, across the state. Uh, Local county folks are involved. There are crowds waiting uh, each time the bus pulls and parks. I think that was the last thing that that many voters, uh, thousands of voters perhaps, will have remembered before they went to cast their ballot. On Tuesday, so I think that was extremely powerful and it's extremely been part effective. part of the Republican recipe uh, for years, and it's effective. I mean, it, it connects in small towns, and you know those votes do start to add up, and they certainly accrue. And you know, and in a close race like the superintendent's race, you know, 
17,000 vote margin, you pick up, you know, 500 votes per county in some of these small counties, yeah, yeah, you bet it adds up. Oh, it adds up, especially when you stack 36 smaller counties together as opposed to eight larger counties. I, and pick up a few big counties, yeah. big like uh, Kootenai, Kootenai County, County and, for and sure. Canyon County. Yeah, that's how you win a statewide race. And I, I don't know how the Democrats can have a path forward. Um, I mean, some interesting things are going to happen. We're going to be looking at redistricting after the 2020 census. Uh, I think it's going to be continuing to be tough. I think the superintendent's race, uh, looking back on this, will probably be the one that Democrats feel like hurt the most. I think right now uh, they're still disappointed uh, over Paulette Jordan's loss. And that was absolutely a historic campaign. Paulette Jordan was campaigning uh, to be the first women Native, woman Native American governor of Idaho, looking to make history. That's never easy. Um, but I... I I, I think Democrats have to be disappointed in that race. And there were a couple of things that jumped out at me about the governor's race on a night when Ada County was the one bright blue spot, really, uh, for the Democrats statewide. They did pick up a seat uh, over in uh, Bannock County, and then seats changed up in District 5 and Leyton, and Benoit County. They picked up one in the Magic County. They picked up the legislative seat. Yeah, so a handful picked up statewide, but I think Ada County was the big victory for Democrats that they can hang their head on from Tuesday night. On a night when Ada County turned a deeper shade of blue, Paulette Jordan only captured 49% of the vote. The, 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 vote uh, the vote gap in Ada County, I'm glad you brought it up, I, it was fascinating to me. I mean, Jordan, as I mentioned, won Ada County big in the primary. That was a, a linchpin for her to win the primary. She carried Ada County on Tuesday night by only 2,000 votes. On a night of huge turnout, Cindy Wilson carried Ada County by about 34,000 votes. So you, what that tells you is that there were thousands of voters who made the conscious decision to go down ticket and vote for a Democrat and vote Republican at the top of the ticket. You know, and I spoke to one prominent Democrat on Tuesday night who said, you know, I... I voted for Brad Little, you know, and, and that's not the first uh, Boise Democrat that we've heard that from. Uh, there, there is just not a connection she was between not. Jordan and the Democratic establishment in, in Boise. And you know, you know, what happens at the top of the ticket affects what happens down ticket. We had talked about, and we mentioned this earlier on the show. If we thought maybe Paulette Jordan could get forty-four percent of the vote, maybe that, and still lose. That would probably propel Cindy Wilson uh, to her victory over Sherry yeah. Bart. We'll yeah, never absolutely. know. Well, but, I, I, I would I mean, say, <laughs> if, if Jordan had to come up with 44, 45% of the vote, Cindy Wilson would be superintendent-elect at, at this point. I think that the, that would have made the path forward for Wilson a lot easier uh, in, in some of the counties where she maybe underperformed or could have performed a little bit better. I, I, there's no question in my mind. Yeah, It's very hard to make up that kind of a gap to to get that many voters to, you know, flip uh, from voting for a Republican gubernatorial candidate to to vote for a Democrat down ticket. So and yeah, it, and it I all think has an effect. It's like you said, Paula Jordan never um, connected with the mainstream apparatus of the Democratic Party, uh, and, and I 
you know, this is sort of our Super Bowl, so this is what we do, kind of analyze the election results. It's very much our Super Bowl, and so I'm not trying to pick on any particular candidate, but there are a couple of other things that I noticed about the governor's race and about some of the statewide trends. If you look at the performance of Jill Humble, an unknown Democrat, largely unknown, mm -hmm. who raised about $31,000 in her um, Secretary of, of State's race yeah. against incumbent Lawrence Denny, didn't have a lot of name recognition, did not raise a lot of money, um, did not really actively campaign. I think few people knew who she was around the state. Paulette Jordan raised $1.1 million and got 9,000 more votes statewide than Jill Humble. And Jill Humble is basically like the generic Democratic name on the ballot. No name recognition, no campaign apparatus, no momentum behind that campaign. And so for the $1.1 million that Paulette Jordan raised, got about 9,000 more votes than... Uh, an unknown Democrat. Right, and, and you look even further down the ticket, um, the Attorney General's race, Bruce Beislein was not even really running a campaign. I mean, you know, I don't think he raised any money. I don't think he was out there. I, think, I had never and, heard of him. No, there, there was there was no campaign to speak of there, you know, to the point where, you know, Beislein may have been kind of a placeholder in case Lawrence Watson somehow lost in a primary, although he was unopposed this time around. Beislein got 203,000 votes, about 35 almost percent to the vote. Maybe that's the floor of what a Democrat can get statewide, you know, just by having a D next to your a name. generic like Democrat. You, you're right, you get your 35 You could have made up a name and got that much. And, and that gets him only 28,000 votes less than Jordan got statewide. So, so, you know, we keep kind of belaboring the point, or it's, maybe it seems like we're belaboring a point, but... Jordan's underperformance in this uh, in this general election was one of the storylines on, on a night where, you know, maybe the Democrats could have broken through and gotten the state superintendent's race on a night where definitely Democrats in Ada County broke through. I mean, you know, one of the micro trends that we saw Tuesday night was that Ada County um, flipped at least two legislative seats. And one fairly important legislative seat for education, Patrick yeah. McDonald, the vice chair of the House Education Committee, he's out. Uh, Lynn Luker, representative uh, from Boise, Republican representative, he's out. Fred Martin, the senator from District 15, who is vice chair of JFAC, who could be in line to be the one of the chairs of the legislature's budget writing committee. This is a big deal. He won by six votes. So that's going to go to a, a recount. That seat may yet flip. On a night when Ada County Democrats flipped a legislative district that they have wanted to flip for several election cycles, on an election night where Ada County Democrats uh, turned over the county commission, we don't cover county commission very often, right. but if we're talking elections, that's important. They won two county commissioner seats that, you know, this is going to be a Democratic-controlled Ada County commission for the first time in a long time. They won a coroner's race that was actually a fairly hotly contested coroner's race and got kind of nasty. Now, we really don't cover coroner's elections, but if we're talking elections, Ada County, this could be the year that we look back on in 10 years and say this was the year that Ada County became blue, really became blue. Not just Boise, but Ada County became blue. On that night, Paula Jordan struggled and it embodied some bigger struggles that she had statewide. And I think it really, you know, definitely had an effect on what we saw in the state superintendent's race. You know, why did she struggle? Well, some of that's the Republican brand. And again, you don't want to 
downplay. I mean, Donald the power Trump won Ada County two years ago. No, and won to downplay the power of the Republican. People never talk about that, and I don't think don't remember that. But Donald Trump won Ada County yeah. two years ago. Um, so potentially a huge shift uh, on on Tuesday night. Uh, obviously, we'll continue to to cover elections and and, and see where it all uh, shakes out and see if the trends continue. But a big shift from Donald Trump carrying the county two years ago to flipping District uh, 15, at least two seats in 15, flipping the county commissioner's races, um, seems significant. Oh, yeah, I think I think it's definitely significant. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, this is not a hot take at all, but what you have in an election like this where you have heavy turnout, and we had pretty heavy turnout all over the state, is that heavy turnout tends to favor whichever party is the prevailing party in that's in that area. We I think we now know that Ada County is a fairly blue county and the heavy turnout definitely favored Democrats up and down the ticket in Ada County. We know, we've known it for years, that Canyon County is heavily Republican yeah. and that certainly played itself out on, on Tuesday. We know now that Kootenai County is probably as, you know, ardently Republican as any part of the state, you know, including Canyon County. And that's certainly played out big uh, in the governor's race. Kootenai Republicans were very happy with Tuesday's performance. There was uh, some talk online from uh, someone active in Kootenai County Republican politics uh, talking about uh, the margin of victory for Superintendent Ibarra there, uh, predicting that a Democrat uh, would never have a chance in Kootenai for 20 more years. Uh, So Republicans in Kootenai County are are feeling really strong uh, and empowered uh, and good about where things stand today. Right. And, you know, Again, it's hard to argue with the numbers, even in some of those legislative seats in, in, in Coeur d'Alene that mm-hmm. maybe are a little bit more urban legislative seats. Yeah, those races weren't terribly close either. So, you know, a, a lot to unwrap from, from the county-by-county county numbers. A few other results that I think we probably, probably need to get to. We talked about one of the real nail-biters from, from Tuesday night, the, the Senate race in District 15. Another nail-biter uh, worth mentioning, College of Western <laughs> Idaho sought $39 million for a plant facilities levy for a new building. That failed. They needed 55% of the vote across Ada and Canyon counties. They got forty. Uh, they got 54.9% of the vote. They came, uh, I think, I haven't done the math, but others have done the math and said it was about 140 votes shy of what it would have taken to pass. Very narrow uh, margin. Maybe looking at a recount. I don't know. They, 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 talk I think that's that. close enough that uh, Sven Berg from the Idaho Statesman reported that they could go with a recount, that it's close enough for a recount. Uh, he also said that uh, the earliest they could come back with a follow-up bond, um, not bond, levy, levy, is in May. Uh, no announcement of what CWI's plans are from here and whether they would come back with another levy in May. Again, very close result. Another uh, round of results that we were looking at closely is uh, Middleton. Middleton had a trio of bond issues up on on Tuesday. All three failed. Uh, They were seeking about $29 million for various building projects. Uh, None of them came close. And this is the third time around for Middleton trying to get uh, uh, bond issues to deal with their growth and uh, again, not even really close. Uh, those we kind of didn't have to watch very very closely the rest of the night because uh, it was a fairly lopsided result. What a week in Middleton. We didn't really... No, I mean... We would be remiss if we didn't do a podcast about education without talking about the week in Middleton. 
Where I mean, did it begin? Well, basically, it began last Friday, right before we recorded last week's episode of Extra Credit. There was the controversy over the racially charged Halloween costumes that staff members, who we now know were both teachers and aides, wore. They were photographed. Uh, one group of teachers or aides was photographed uh, in costumes depicting a border wall uh, that included the Make America Great Again slogan from President Donald Trump. There was another group of teachers that were photographed in very stereotypical Mexican costumes, mm-hmm. things like fake mustaches Sombrero, and sombreros. That, you know, Those went viral. The pushback online was immediate. People called them racist and offensive and insensitive. Uh, Friday morning, Middleton Superintendent Josh Middleton, that's a little confusing that the superintendent of Middleton's name is also Middleton, just a coincidence, but uh, the superintendent, Josh Middleton, on Friday morning announced the district would be launching an investigation into the situation. I called it inappropriate and insensitive. And then uh, the floodgates opened because that story went viral all across the country. We had numbers on our own site, the likes of which we had never seen before in terms of readers and page views. This struck a chord with people. And it went national. And it went national, and people felt strongly. It was in, I believe it was in the New York Times and any number of other national CNN was tweeting it out, uh, you you name it. Then there were competing petitions, one calling for accountability, saying no to racism in Middleton School District, another uh, supporting the teachers, calling for the teachers to be reinstated. And that was obviously people were weighing in from all over, and and how do we know that? Well, because there were 20,000-plus signatures on those petitions in the population of Middleton, according to the Census Bureau, is about 7,400 or so. Right, yeah. Yeah, this this was not just, I mean, <laughs> this wasn't entirely grassroots stuff going on here. No. Uh, so I guess that was Friday. Saturday morning, I went out to Middleton, which is, um, you know, just a, a small but growing rural community located west of Boise. I went out there Saturday morning for a special board meeting that the district called on short notice. Uh, They talked about the investigation. They announced that all 14 staff members involved in the costume controversy had been placed on paid administrative leave, and a new acting principal was installed at the elementary school where this took place. And the board issued a very strong statement um, saying there's no place in education for this. We won't tolerate it. There's no place in Middleton School District for this. And so that was... Saturday. Right, that was Saturday. And the that was bonds. Kind of, and, that was the, and that was the tone from the Very board. strong. And that's important because of where we're about to go and, next. And, but, but before we leave Saturday, because you were there, yeah. give us a sense of the room. I mean, what was the mood? What was the atmosphere? What was the... It was, the, it was totally yeah. opposite from like the online vitriol that everybody had been seeing. There were about 20 people that attended... Uh, the school board meeting, uh, there were no demonstrations or protests or outbursts. Uh, they had a law enforcement presence. To they did. Sure they had four. They had four Middleton police cars parked there, and a Canyon County Sheriff's cruiser uh, drove by. Only about twenty people. Some people who lived within the district boundaries. Several other people who did not live within the district boundaries, but wanted to come and see what was happening. But it was very cordial. There were no outbursts or disruptions, no anger, no arguments, no disagreements. And so the superintendent at the beginning announced the suspensions. They went into an executive session, a closed-door meeting to discuss personnel matters for about two hours, almost two hours. Came out, read a statement, said that the investigation uh, will continue. They did not allow the public uh, to speak or to testify 
And, um, you know, I, I talked to one young Latina woman uh, from the Nampa area uh, who came out to the board meeting and said that she had never been to a school board meeting. She had seen the pictures online. She felt strongly about it. She thought that there should be some accountability for the teachers. And she said that, in her opinion, this was not just poor judgment. This was not just a mistake that the teachers made. But there were a group of adults, 14 people, educators. And she said that as teachers, they're expected to know what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, And that this was not just poor judgment. And she made the point that, in her opinion, and with several of her friends in the Hispanic community as parents, she felt that they would not be able to trust those teachers with their children because of this decision and because of this situation. I think that's a fair point, uh, and that was her point, and that was what she traveled out to the school district um, thinking and concerned about. And so well, that there, was there's Saturday. That was Saturday. Uh, Tuesday no, no, is important. Tuesday. Tuesday is important because twenty nine million dollars worth of bonds failed at least for the third consecutive time. Yeah, third time around since since March that Middleton has sought a bond issue. So they they carved it into three pieces mm-hmm. and just uh, going to go over the numbers real quickly, uh, not to belabor them. Uh, one got 49% support, one got 57% support, the other one got 49%. And as bonds, these needed the two-thirds, two-thirds super, super majority, majority, basically 67% almost. None of these did as well as the two previous bond issues from May and August. Yeah. So I think they both came in at about 59 60%. The thing, and I can't tell right now because I was trying to look uh, at the Canyon County election site. I can't find precinct by precinct breakdown, so I can't find the numbers uh, as opposed to uh, how absentee voting broke uh, versus voting on election day. I think, think (laughs) that the first numbers that uh, Canyon County posted were the absentee numbers, uh, the early voting. And that would have been, that would have predated this controversy. Exactly. And that's what most counties do when they do election night uh, is that they post the the absentee and the early voting because they can count that stuff uh, ahead of time and and plunk those numbers in as as quick as possible, quickly as possible. Um, Those early numbers, wherever they came from, whether they were indeed absentee or not, this thing, these three bond issues were failing from the beginning, and those numbers never seemed to budge all that much. So I'm loath to make an assumption that these bond issues failed because of what happened last week. I don't I think we can say that based on what we know today. You can definitely not make that causal link, and you can't jump to that conclusion. I, I think, uh, and by the margin that these uh, failed, I don't know if it really made a whole lot of difference in the bond issue, but that's what happened Tuesday night. Now we got to get to Wednesday. Get to Wednesday and just a complete about-face from the school district. Um, I had expected the investigation to continue for some time, at least until next Monday when the next school board meeting was. However, on Wednesday, I want to point out, less than 24 hours after those bonds failed, and kind of failed spectacularly in a way, uh, the school district announced via a statement posted to the district website that it was reinstating all of the staff members involved in the controversy, welcoming them back with opening ar- with open arms, saying that as a result of the investigation, they found that the teachers acted with nothing but love and commitment in their hearts. And it's important to say that the district kept confidential what it found. Right. But this was an about face over the course of four or five days going from completely inappropriate, no place in education to acting with love in their hearts. Yeah. And, and I just don't, 
I, I'm not privy to the results of the investigation, and so there is information that I do not know. Um, but that is a dramatic, breathtaking about face. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. And, you know, that's the problem of writing about a personnel issues, that so much of it is confidential. And I understand that, you know, there are privacy issues with, with personnel matters. Totally get that. But all you can do is look at what happened and in the time that it happened. I mean, you know, we go from Friday, Saturday to Wednesday. That doesn't leave you a lot of time for an investigation. That leaves you... And there was all these distractions going on. They were getting all these phone calls and emails, these viral posts and Facebook comments. They had an election. There were people driving by. There were signs and banners placed outside the schools. Um, Yeah, I mean, I... I hate to say too much because I don't, I'm not privy to the investigation. I do not know the folks in Super, in Middleton well at all. I had met Superintendent Middleton before this, back when he was hired. I've talked to him a couple of times. I, they obviously found something in the investigation, but the concern from community members, especially the Hispanic and Latina community, was very real, very significant, and that was not generated by the media that concern was there before, frankly, before the news media uh, learned about the story. And, and this is a community, this is a district, I think the numbers are about 13%, 13% Latino yeah. uh, student population. So so that's a significant uh, segment of It's of hard for me, population. though, to reconcile two statements from Middleton five days apart. You almost see, you don't, I almost can't see how they could make one statement Saturday and then the same people would be making the statement that came out Wednesday. It is hard for me to reconcile that. It, it, and it's really hard to reconcile when you when we don't know and we'll never right. know really the, the nature of the investigation, the depth of the investigation, the findings of the investigation. Well, we don't know really and what we never happened will. behind closed doors between Saturday and Wednesday. And if anything happened leading up to the welcoming the staffers back with open arms, you know, what kind of conversations happened between administrators and the staffers leading up to that point. So anyway, uh, that's where things stand in Middleton right now. Uh, the school board meets again on Monday. So we'll, you know, who, who knows? Who, who knows? knows where the story goes from here? But it has been, you know, and just as an aside, I mean, you know, Clark, you mentioned it. And I think it's, I don't think we're talking out of turn here to say uh, Friday and Saturday uh, were the two busiest days on our website in are the five and a half years we've been doing this by far uh, in terms of page views and and this is an important story and, and it obviously hit a nerve with a lot of folks not just nationally and internationally I'm not as concerned about that I know that this story hit a nerve with people locally as well yeah. I, I, I'm not trying to downplay it it's the kind of story though as I, as I look at our page view numbers we also had a lot of page views on election day mm-hmm. and the day after election and you know Frankly, as a journalist, you know, that's the stuff that I feel is really important that we do. Uh, Covering elections, covering public policy, helping people make sense of public policy. There's definitely a public policy component to what happened in Middleton between, you know, what happened on Friday and Saturday and what happened on Wednesday. That's important for us to cover. You know, at at the end, I mean, I'm glad readers also came to us to to, uh learn about elections and try to maybe have a better sense of where the candidates stood before voting, how the elections were unfolding, what the elections mean, what the implications are. Um, 
you know, as, as a journalist, that's stuff that I really hold close to the heart. That's the stuff that I think we do that's really important to do. So it's been quite a week. <laughs> and, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll regroup and we'll have plenty of other stuff to write about next week. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I want to thank everybody for, uh, you know, checking out our homepage, listening to the podcast, following us on social media. We did have the best two days that we've ever had and the best week that we've ever had. And I think it's already safe to say that we've secured the best month that we've ever had. So I want to thank everybody for that. And, you know, like you and I talked about, we're just going to take the rest of the month off, right? Yeah, we, well, with those numbers, no, uh, there is a lot of, <laughs> we are not, there, we are a not lot of election follow-up yet to do. Uh, we'll break down a little bit further next week on the podcast uh, how some of the dominoes may fall. And you, and you wrote about this this week. But looking ahead to the legislative session and the pre-session, the organizational session, very important stuff. We'll get Try back get into us. that on another episode yeah. of Extra Credit. Yeah, there's just way more that we needed to get to right in this moment. But we'll talk next week about what may happen with uh, the education committees and with uh, the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. Maybe we'll have a little bit more insight into uh, what happens with Fred Martin's uh, Senate race yeah. and how that may affect some of the dominoes. A lot to get to, so a lot of post-election, pre-legislative uh, stuff to get to. Uh, late November, I will finally uh, drop a, the series that I've been working on on the 60% goal and the demographics, uh, the demographic challenges that the state is facing in trying to get to that 60% post-secondary goal. So that's coming up. So no, we're not taking the rest of November off. We will, no. we will still be here writing. We'll still be here podcasting. We may not do a podcast on Black Friday, so you may have to. Uh, oh, I think it's safe the day after Thanksgiving to start busting will. out. That you know, my unwritten rule not on, is I don't start listening to Christmas carols until the day after Thanksgiving. So we won't have a podcast the day after Thanksgiving. Feel free to listen to holiday <laughs> music. You have my permission. You have my blessing. But we've got a lot to get to still in November. A lot of work to do, but what a week. What a wild week. What a wild week. Thanks so much for listening. If you're listening to this live today on Friday, uh, November 9th, I will be on Idaho Public Television tonight on Idaho Reports, 8 o'clock, breaking down some of the big election results. You can check that out. Uh, if you want more election news, certainly head over to the homepage, www.idahoednews.org. If you need to get caught up on any of our big stories, double-check any of the numbers from Tuesday's election get caught up on anything that we've uh, written about. And certainly that will be the place to be in late November when Kevin drops his big series, uh, looking at higher education, education attainment, barriers to higher education, those sorts of things. Uh, so thanks so much, everybody, for sticking with us. It's been a busy week and a long podcast, and I appreciate everybody hanging out. Uh, it, this is kind of exciting to us. I did mention that this is sort of our Super Bowl, but like we get fired up about this, these elections and the politics behind it. Um, and so it's fun for us and I hope it's fun for you guys and thanks so much uh, for joining us as we kind of break down this complicated intersection of policy and politics. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.